Good evening, everyone. Uh, this is Rob coming at you with a special episode of the JMU Sports Blog Podcast. Uh, once again, we are brought to you by Pale Fire Brewing in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Swing by the tasting room, tell them Jamie's, Jamie USB sent you, and you will get a, a free pint glass. Um, you might notice this is me talking, not Todd. Todd is on vacation, so we have a special guest host, uh, Chase Kitty from Hero Sports. So welcome, Chase. What's hey, up? So those of you that that are familiar with with our podcast and our blog i assume the venn diagram of people that follow us and also follow chase is probably one big concentric circle but uh just in case there is anybody out there who's not familiar with you chase why don't you tell us a little about yourself and uh, what you do with hero sports sure um i i guess i'm part of like this new like younger wave of dudes who are obsessed with jmu sports uh i guess is the unprofessional way to put it (laughs) Um, I graduated in 2014. I was the sports editor at the Breeze for a little while, like 2012, 2013. I covered the like tail end of Mickey Ball. Uh, I worked for the Page News and Courier for a couple years after college, which was like, it's like a weekly satellite offshoot of the Daily News record. And then I stopped doing that like early this year. Uh, I started writing for Hero Sports. They kind of like blew up and burst onto the scene like the last couple years. And they reached out to me last summer and said, hey, do you want to do a little bit of some JMU stuff for us? Uh, so that's when I started writing the, uh, these Doomed Dukes articles that a lot of people read and a lot of people had strong reactions. A lot of people did to. not get the, hum- uh, <laughs> the satire nature went straight yes. over people's heads. Uh, yes. Some, so I, I Definitely some people did not get them. I, I feel like in hindsight, we've all collectively enjoyed the people that didn't get it so much that we have like, we've, we've ballooned the percentage of people that didn't get it. Yeah, a little bit it was just, the, the vocal but, minority. It was so fun to hear people like overreact. Yeah. And get it when, you know, 99% of the people were laughing right along and thought it was hilarious. Uh, yeah. And, and it was fun because, uh, <laughs> Not to get sidetracked, but the first one, the the East Carolina uh, game day, like we played East Carolina the day one of my best friends got married and I was the best man in the wedding. So uh, shout out to Ethan Cammer. Uh, he's he's getting married and we're like locked away about to, you know, do the ceremony and everything. And my phone's ringing off the hook, like getting hate <laughs> mail from people that didn't get it. It was hilarious. Um but yeah, so they uh, they contacted me last summer, and I started writing those. And I think uh, that that was probably a lot of people's first exposure to me. And Hero Sports brought me on full time to be an FCS correspondent. Uh, my title's lead writer. Me and Sam Herter are both lead writers. And then Brian McLaughlin, everybody knows he is he's sort of the ringleader at all. And and we have that three man team over there at Hero Sports, and we're uh, we're trying to cover FCS football uh, the way it deserves, the way that. You know, it should be covered, but nobody else really does it. Uh, and we are really excited about it. We've been going pretty hot and heavy all summer long. And we're excited for the season to start here in a couple of weeks. No, and, uh, as readers and fans of Hero Sports, we're really excited too. Uh, you and Brian and Sam do a terrific job. You can see the coverage is building. It's been good all summer, and I'm really anxious to see what you guys have in store in the fall. Um, definitely check it out. People that haven't read it, it's a great site. Uh, Chase has been doing some cool stuff along with Brian kind of, and Sam counting down, you know, the best FCS player, every number, um, kind of a fun summertime thing. And you had a nice piece on Jimmy Laycock, uh, today, which, um, we're going to get to that in a minute. Um, so just quick rundown. We are going to basically just talk football like you'd expect. And then we've got a, uh, a special guest, an interview I recorded earlier tonight with the new 
head coach of women's tennis, and I think people will enjoy that. But for now, we're just going to roll it. Chase and I are going to kind of riff. I will play the role of Todd. I will play the role of myself. And uh, let's kick it off with Jimmy Laycock. The big news last night, William & Mary's long-tenured, very successful coach of 39 years, uh, announced that this will be his final season. Um, what do you think about that, Chase? You know, I was a little surprised, not because – not because of the retirement, because, it's, you know, 2018 will be his 39th season in Williamsburg. He's been the head coach of William & Mary since 1980. So, obviously, like, he's 70 years old. So, the fact that he's going to retire isn't in and of itself shocking. But I was at CA Media Day uh, a couple weeks ago now. And, he I mean, he the front that he and that athletics department had up was like, and it's, it was no signs of slowing down. Uh, it was basically the message that they were sending out to us. So it was a little surprising just because we just heard that, like, nope, full speed ahead into 2018, we're ready to go. Uh, even though in the back of your mind you know, like, okay, this is coming sooner rather than later. You know, he's, he's not going to do it forever. But it's, you know, he, he leaves a really cool legacy. Um, obviously, they've been down the last couple of years. But uh, I, I think it was actually on your all's podcast I was listening to a couple weeks ago, and you guys were talking about this, about how, you know, maybe, you know, maybe the last couple of years they haven't been very good, but they were they won the CAA as recently as 2015. They were the last CAA team to beat JMU. Yeah, they were. They were the last CAA team to beat JMU, and they they were a co-champion with Richmond yeah. and JMU in 2015, which was the last season of Ever Withers. So, you know, he'll end up being the third longest uh, tenured coach in the history of Division One football behind Joe Paterno, uh, who obviously was at Penn State, and uh, Amos Alonzo Stagg, who was uh, University of Chicago like a century ago. So definitely a uh, rare company. Yeah, for I, I think it's awesome. And, and people who listen to podcasts will know, like, I pay a lot of attention to William Mary. Todd pays a lot of attention. His brother's an alum. It's a school that we really enjoy JMU competing with. I think I speak for a lot of people when I say William Mary is very different from JMU. Um, I think people at William Mary are there for a very specific reason. There's a type, and um, they know it. They're proud of it. They don't hide from it. And I mean that in the most generous sense. Like, I think it's a school that kind of knows itself. They don't pull any punches. I love JMU being mentioned in the same breath as William Mary. It's a school I respect. It's a student body I respect. It's a fan base I respect. And Jimmy Laycock absolutely is a coach that I respect. I mean, the guy has done so well there um, for nearly four decades. And it's a school, you know, we, we joke all the time about how their fans make such a big deal about, you know, the, the scholar athletes and, oh, it's so difficult to recruit. And it's, we've got these academic standards. That's fun to joke about, but it is a real concern. You know, it, there are some, some definite advantages to that. You know, <laughs> being able to recruit saying you can get this what they believe and what most people believe to be a premium degree from a great institution. That's an advantage, but it's also hard to find kids that qualify at times. And he's never used that as an excuse. If anything, he's used it as a positive. Um, he's built a tremendous program. They've been really successful. They've been to the playoffs, you know, I think over a dozen times or, or more than that, but um, competed, made it all the way to the semifinals in 2004 and a really outstanding team that fell to JMU at home. It was a great game from our perspective kind of their high water mark, but um, he's just a tremendous coach. He's a great representative of his school. He's a great representative of the CAA, and he's a great representative of FCS and kind of everything that's good about college football. So I, I wish him a lot of luck. I hope they do really well this season. I hope they finish in second place 
and and have a great year. <laughs> right, right, right behind the Dukes. The Dukes. But, um, it's fine. You know, it's, I, I think it's one of those programs that is it, it just it's they've played so many good games against Jamie. Even the last couple of years when Jamie really outclassed much of the CAA and William Mary was down, they played Jamie really tough and were right there in it. You know, a couple I think it was an interception from from Jimmy um, late last year and a couple of years ago, same sort of thing. So it's tough to see him walk away, but I'm glad he's walking away on his own terms. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know, I don't know how, to what degree, uh, you know, the average fan pays attention to, to certain sort of inside baseball details of, you know, conference football and stuff. When you talk about peer institutions, I mean, you sort of touched on this. William & Mary, that, that is a peer institution that if you are a JMU fan, you should be happy that we have. And Jimmy Laycock, I mean, he, he really has kept that program operating at a high level, particularly relative to what they bring in. Uh, and, and, yeah, I mean, I mean, you can't say enough about the guy. He's beloved by everybody in the media, by all of his peers. I, I've never heard – anybody say a bad thing about him so yeah uh, definitely definitely agree with a lot of what you just said you know i'm happy he gets to go out on his own terms and and i think he leaves a, a legacy that's really rich both on yeah and absolutely and it's funny to think what might have been because back prior to me being at jamie certainly prior to, to you being around in 1990 he actually accepted the head coaching position at boston college and then 24 hours later changed his mind you know it was announced it was in all the papers he was going and then he reneged and decided to stay at his alma mater and that job ended up going to Tom Coughlin and kind of the rest is history. But he was a hot name in coaching back in the early 90s. I, I believe he was in the running for the Maryland job at one point. Um, there's been some really great coaches that have come out of that school and been part of his coaching tree. So um, he'll be looking forward to seeing him this year and seeing how the team kind of rises to the occasion during his last year. But For sure. It, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, just I, – I... I, I feel almost a little bad. Like, I'd love to see William & Mary have a great season in 2018. I don't want to sort of rain on the parade because it is like, you know, it's been a lot of outpouring here, but they were picked 11th. For, for a reason. Uh, it, this might not be the Disney yes. movie ending. Exactly. And uh, it, not only were they picked 11th, but we were talking on the Hero Sports Podcast last week about how I thought 11th might have been too yeah. high. <laughs> I mean – I, I don't – they might not win a conference game this year for the second year. It's been year weird because Laycock has a deserved reputation for being somewhat of a QB whisperer over, over his years in the Berg, but he really has struggled, uh, particularly with that position the past four or five – or I guess 2015. Even when they won, it wasn't stellar quarterback play. They got this guy, Sean Mitchell, who's a hot shot. Uh, he was true sophomore this year. They might have rushed him last year and uh, – it, it's going to be tough. You know, we all want to see him go out with that storybook ending, but like you, I, I don't know. It just, it's it, this, this could be the best we're talking about William Mary right now until the season starts. Yeah. I, I have my doubts, but I certainly, uh, I, I certainly wish him the best and I hope it works out. Yeah. Before we move on from this, uh, this is one of my favorite rivalries. William Mary. Do you have any particular memories or, or games against the tribe between Jamie and William Mary that stand out? Uh, yeah, I, I suppose, um, you know, when you're a JMU fan, obviously your, your William & Mary uh, memories are going to be filtered through sort of purple tone prism. Uh, but I always enjoyed, uh, it's kind of a game that a lot of JMU fans forget, I think. 
2010, William and Mary is number one late in the season. Uh, it's like November 10th, November 11th. JMU, this is the same season that JMU beat Tech. So everybody, like the start of the season, everybody is so high because we, oh, we beat Tech, we beat Tech. And then just the wheels fall off the yeah. wagon. And JMU's like one and five in conference play. They're, they're four and five. The playoffs are not in the picture. Number one, William and Mary comes to Harrisonburg and JMU beats them. Daquan Scott has like three touchdowns and 170 yep. yards. And it just kind of came out of nowhere. And it was sort of like the perfect like microcosm for the late Mickey seasons of like just up and down and never knowing what to expect, never getting too high, never getting well, too low. Well, the funniest part, I was going to say that game too. That's the one that stands out for me. Scott played quarterback. Yeah. They went wildcat the entire game. Didn't did not yes. complete a single pass, and knocked off the number one team in the country. Um, I mean, it was, right. it was like it was my sophomore season yeah. too. I went yeah. to that game with my whole family. I brought my parents because Todd just gave up hope, and Todd is the most optimistic fan. Always thinks JMU is going to win. Um, I got all of our group season tickets that weekend because nobody wanted. To, even Todd is like, "There's no hope. They're going to get killed. I can't stomach it." Never going to hear the answer from my brother, so on and so forth. So I got all the tickets and went down, and it was, I mean, it, it was comical. You talk about a storybook ending, like we were just saying, Laycock probably won't get. This was the complete kind of Disney story underdog thing, where not even I think they attempted one pass, didn't complete it, but they were zero for one, knocked off the number one team in the country. Scott had 125 yards and three touchdowns um, as a rookie or CA rookie of the week. And it was just, it was funny. It was like the best of Mickey, but also kind of the maddening Mickey exactly. experience. Yes. And, uh, and you know, that was, I think people uh, forget how good William and Mary was that couple of years too, because the previous year they won to the semifinal, the FCS semifinals. Mm-hmm. And then that year they won the CAA and were ranked number one. So that, and that was sort of the, I mean, I know they won in 2015, but like that two-year period, 09 and 10. I mean, the tribe were really cooking. Yeah, with gas no, there. they were fantastic. I was going to say that one, or then the other big one that stands out for me is in 04, the semifinal game down in right. Boyd Mary. You know, that was a bit of a revenge game. The teams played a great game in Harrisonburg that I think William Mary won on a, a last-second field goal in the wind in Old Bridgeforth. Um, they had Lane Campbell, who was a heck of a quarterback, but then. Jamie came and just kind of took them behind the woodshed uh, in front of temporary lights that they brought in for the ESPN two game on a Friday night. So um, many, many great games, but those are just two that really stood out to me. Yeah. Okay. Well, moving on. Um, one thing I was reading one of your pieces today on, on hero sports. And again, everybody please go check that out. Chase is doing a great job over there. And you were talking about Eastern Washington last year and if they deserve to be the favorite in the big sky. Like you, I agree that they do, but you brought up one thing that I thought was really interesting and Eastern Washington for fans that don't know, missed the playoffs last year. A lot of people who followed thought they were a deserving team, but they finished seven and four kind of on the bubble and they didn't make it. And they were seven and four because they chose to play an out of conference game at North Dakota state, um, which they lost. Chase, you made the great by a lot. lot. I mean, it wasn't close. (laughs) This was not, you didn't think they were a contender after this game, but it still was like a marquee game. And you made the point that they could have easily just played games with the schedule and put together a much more winnable game, which would basically be anybody in the FCS, save maybe JMU or one or two other teams. And they probably would have been eight and three and in the playoffs. Yeah. And it just got me thinking, like, with FCS scheduling, there's so many different ways to take it. And do you kind of prepare for the playoffs? Like, take a JMU lacrosse 
type cover where you just play the toughest opponents you can figuring we're going to run the gauntlet and then we'll be peaked by the time the playoffs are going. But the downside is you've got that risk where you could find yourself outside looking in, even if you're a solid team. So I don't know, like if you could play AD or you could play scheduler, what would be your approach to scheduling if you were like a CAA team? First of all, this is such a good question um, that maybe we don't wrestle with enough. Um, I think, I, I, you know, I read somewhere recently, I, I wish I could remember where. I know it wasn't like, I know I'm not transposing a conversation I've had with like Houston or Jeff Bourne or somebody. I definitely read it somewhere. And it might have even been somewhere based in Fargo, where North Dakota State and JMU evidently approach scheduling the same way. We want to be ideally two and one after our, our out of conference games. And I think that that sort of speaks to one way you can approach scheduling is you can go take a pay game. I mean, obviously try to win, you know, if you're playing an FBS school, that's paying you 500 grand, obviously you want to go there and win, but it's okay to assume that's probably a loss, you know, given the scholarship differences and everything, you know, go ahead and just write that down as an L conceptually. Uh, and then you go play two schools that you're probably going to beat the crap out of. Uh, you know, JMU has relationships with St. Francis and Central Connecticut yeah, the, the, State. The, the and, Northeast and, you know, Conference type schools. Yeah, NEC schools and, and you know, Patriot League schools. And, and people JMU feels pretty confident they can go beat. They go two and one, and then they go into the CAA schedule. And playing in the CAA, you know, you go four and two in the CAA or whatever. It's six and two, not four and two. Five and three, six and two, you're in the playoffs. I think that's the way JMU approaches it. I think it's mathematically a smart way to approach it. Uh, I think that works for a team like JMU or a team like North Dakota State where the public knows what they're getting. Like five years ago, I might have told JMU maybe do something else because even JMU fans didn't know often what they were going to get with JMU from year to year. Um, I think when you look at a team maybe like Eastern Washington or like Delaware, which is another uh, – the other team that really got snubbed last year, you know, maybe you need to go out and prove something. Uh, may, you know, if you're angling for a seed or maybe you're just angling to get it at all. Now, obviously, you don't need to go schedule North Dakota State like Eastern Washington did. Or Delaware did but, this year. You know, or Delaware yeah. did this year. Uh, but, you know, if you want to – if you got something to prove, go play – a good Southland team or a Southern conference team, you know, go, go Elon's playing uh, like Furman this year. That's a pretty good example. If, if their schedule wasn't already impossible to begin with. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it, it just depends on your goals. I think if, if you're trying to, you know, minimize risk, I think the way that JMU approaches it is pretty smart. Uh, if you got something to prove, then, you know, go out and get it. And if you're one of these big sky teams and you just want to get paid, you know, schedule two or three FBS uh, schools and make a million dollars. Well, that's what's crazy. When you see schools go out and they play two FBS games, take two L's, fund the athletic program, but kill any chance of the playoffs. And that's got to be disheartening for some things. But I, I think the other thing to consider is what conference you're in. Like if you're in the CAA, even Delaware, you can do that to try to make a splash and maybe put yourself – in the seed conversation. You know, if Delaware goes and, and beats North Dakota State, that changes the entire trajectory of their season. 
of every of every receiver. Really, yeah, uh, that, that rocks the whole season. But because they're in the CAA, even if they lose, even if they lose big, it still doesn't close the door in the playoffs. In, in totally. fact, it has very yeah. little impact on that. You know, like you said, if you win five games in the CAA, you're, you're going to be okay. So it's interesting. And, and Rocco, to his credit, told me that at CAA Media Day, he basically was like, "Yeah, it's an exhibition." Yeah, game. you're kind of playing with house money. You know, it's it's a little different for JMU when you're you go into the season expecting, okay, we got to do what we can to be a top four seed. North Dakota State, same thing, but at Delaware, why not take your chance? Particularly if you get a home and home like they did. Um, I know JMU fans will scream and yell talking about how JMU turned down the opportunity to play North Dakota State. I agree with Bourne. I wouldn't go out there without without a guaranteed game coming back. So, um, it's an interesting conundrum, and I don't know. There's no real right way or wrong way. I am in favor of kind of the two and one approach, meaning like if you can go into your, your conference season every year, knowing you can get two wins, likely maybe three, it's good to go. But I don't think that one likely loss or even the one high risk game needs to be an FBS game. You know, years ago, um, 2008, when Jane, you kind of played app state, or if you could get North Dakota state or a, a Sam Houston, or I mean, heck maybe even Kennesaw in a couple of years, you know, one of these kind of power games, for me, would be a fair trade-off in a year when you don't have an FBS game on the schedule. I'd be a little leery of scheduling both um, in a certain year, in a year that JMU was really gunning for a seed. Yeah, you're backing yourself into a corner at that point. Yeah. I mean, you, you're, you're putting yourself in a position where you have to win a game in September, and that's, that's just unnecessary, especially when you're in the CAA. Yeah. I mean, it's fun, and I think as fans and certainly season ticket holders, yeah, I'd much rather be going to Harrisonburg for a marquee game than a Northeast Conference game in September. But I'd also rather Jamie be playing deep into December. So, I don't know, no right or wrong. Like, for me, the, the perfect happy medium is if you can get a kind of brand name or well-recognized regional rival. Um, Jamie kind of in a rough spot with that, Liberty moving to FBS, and I don't think that really turns the needle outside of maybe Lynchburg and Southwest Virginia, but um, a Southern Conference team like Elon and Furman, I think that's a great matchup, one that you brought up earlier. Um, yeah. Appy used to be a good one. It's tough with JMU. Um, you know, the, the kind of regional, like Georgetown, is a nothing program. People have heard of it. It would be fun to play in the D.C. area with a large alumni base, but that game would be a they're, bigger they're wipeout very, than St. Francis. You know, that's, they're very bad. Yeah, that's yeah. not even a real and Speaking as the person that had to write their preview this season at Hero Sports this summer, they're not no. good. <laughs> but I like the idea of playing – like, I liked Lehigh, even though Jamie kind of handed it to him. I think if you can come up with some sort of uh, regular scheduling alliance with the Patriot League, it's a little more intriguing for some alums. Now, granted, Lehigh, Bucknell, Fordham, not household names, but they're generally competitive. Um, in the right year, you'd be facing a team that was challenging for the playoffs as well. My dream scenario would be for one of the Ivies to finally agree to play Jamie. I think it would be exciting as a fan – and they're pretty good. You're never going to see them in the playoffs. But like Harvard, Yale, those guys recruit really well. They play really good football. And I think it's certainly a recognizable name. Um, and, it's, and a game that Jamie would probably win. But I don't know. No perfect answer. But it's, it's a fun thing to kind of ponder. Yeah. yeah to piggyback off that, uh, the Ivy League, I mean, I've talked about this everywhere. The Ivy League is going to be sick this year. Like Yale is filthy. Uh, there's a lot of it's kind of like the CAA. There's a lot of depth in that league this year, and uh, it's I'm telling you, like pick pick an Ivy League game or two and pop it on, like when you're not doing anything one Saturday this uh, this this fall, because 
it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be good. It's gonna be compelling stuff. Yeah, it's good football. There's a lot of a lot of passion. Um, it's kind of foreign to me. <laughs> Obviously, not really an Ivy League type guy. But um, I don't know. It's disappointing that they don't participate in the playoffs for what I consider to be kind of silly reasons. You know, the, the players are are smart enough for I'm sure they can balance it. They do in every other sport. You'd think they could find a way to make it happen in, in football, but um, I don't know. Especially years like this when they are good and they have teams that probably could win a few games in the playoffs. We, uh, JMU needs to go get that pay game from Liberty. What is Liberty paying ODU like a million dollars to come in this year or something? I don't know. Something they're, crazy they're like that? Everybody. They're, they're going to buy their schedule for the foreseeable future and put it on whatever homegrown network they have. And I mean, God bless them. Maybe it works out, but that's just a situation that is not analogous. I think that's what they're counting on is God bless them. Yeah, well, I mean, there's, there's, there's no other school that can even compare themselves. Everybody's like, oh, you know, Jamie, you should do that. Just move up. They've got deep pockets. and Yeah, it's them and BYU. I mean, they, nobody else would even dream of trying to do what they're doing just because it's so fiscally untenable. No, it's crazy. But, you know, they, they've, got, they've got the money. Then, you well, know. When you've got 80,000 online students right. or whatever it is, yeah. and different pipeline. plan, but uh, I'm not sad to see them go. I didn't enjoy playing them. I didn't find that to be that fun of a rivalry. I think a lot of people would like to play them again. I, the way that playoff game went under Withers and the way uh, some of those Liberty people went out of Harrisonburg, I think there'd be a lot of JMU people that would love another shot at them. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'd FBS like to beat them. FBS FCS. Ironically, yeah. they're the only fan base other than maybe West Virginia. And West Virginia was more just good-natured trash-talking and kind of what you'd expect from a rabid fan base. But all of our previews where we kind of tongue-in-cheek take shots at the other team – Liberty's the only fan base where it was just a complete miss. We talked about like with your articles and people didn't get the satire aspect. Oh my gosh. Those people just came in. Droves, I remember that. And it was yeah. like, you guys really don't get that. This is all just in good fun, but maybe that was on us. I don't know, but it just seemed to be an over the top overreaction. So. Yeah. I, I remember you guys writing that preview and it, it uh, not, not hitting the mark for the, no, it, uh, it people. did not, yeah. did not land. Okay. But, uh, okay, moving on. Like, one more thing I want to touch on kind of before we wrap up and, and we get to the interview with with uh, the lacrosse coach. Rashad Robinson is the big name. Everybody's talking about him. He was featured on Hero, you know, the best FCS player wearing number 22. He is obviously kind of the guy that everybody's paying attention to at JMU this year. But I'd like to talk about other players, not really flying under the radar because I think JMU is a big enough program where we, we know kind of the ins and outs, but – who we think might be somebody that somebody's t- that fans are talking about or moving into that really exceeding expectations type thing. So, do you have any other players on on your radar who you think might turn some heads this year? I mean, you mentioned Rashad Robinson, and obviously, rightfully so, he's the pre- preseason defensive player of the year in the CAA. I think you could start this conversation just by listing the entire secondary because that is a filthy position group. Rashad Robinson, Jimmy Moreland, Curtis Oliver, D'Angelo Amos, Wayne Davis, the Ohio State transfer, Charles Tutts coming back, Adam Smith, Wesley McCormick. That's a stupid, talented group. So just that alone, I think, like, know everybody's name. Know, know the dudes on the two deeps name. Uh, past that, uh, Dave Thomas is really high on Rondell Carter. Uh, so I'd say definitely know him. Um, man, just 
I think the, the, the sort of the brilliance of what Houston has done is he, he doesn't necessarily want any one player to dominate every week. He, he wants all the contributions to come from different places. That's more of an offensive philosophy for him. But it, I think it rings true on defense as well. And so th- in a way, this is almost an impossible conversation. But, yeah, there, there's some names in there for sure. Uh, the, the Carters, I think, will all be really good, and, and, and most of the dudes in the secondary are going to put up numbers. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the defensive line, too. I mean, you got guys like the Carters and Paris Black. Um, it's going to be one of those things where we should know their names, but I have a feeling we're going to be confused because, like you said, there's different guys that will contribute every week. It's such a deep unit, um, the entire defense. I just, I, I'm starting to think it could be even – better than last year maybe maybe not statistically because that was like a once in a generation but I think we could have games where they're more dominant you know just absolutely like crushing the quarterback and the interceptions who knows if they'll get into the 30s like last year but this unit there's just talent everywhere on that defense yeah for sure and yeah it's it almost feels like I, I don't think I truly knew what phrases like, you know, an embarrassment of riches was until I saw these last couple of defenses that Houston's put together. Because you're not supposed to have 11 dudes who are this good on an FCS team. You're just not. And there's no real weakness. There's no place you can attack if you're an opposing offense. Mm-hmm. You just have to be better than them. And that's almost impossible. So, yeah, I mean, I, I would argue that – it's a hot take alert. Uh, I would argue that JMU was the better team in the national championship playing against North Dakota State. Now, they didn't win the game, but I, I think when you watched that game, like, I thought they outplayed North Dakota State. Uh, I, I'd agree with that, and that's not yeah. just – well, it is me being biased in some sense, but I think objectively speaking, you could make an argument for either team. It was that close of a game. Jamie had some bad breaks. There were some questionable calls. I still don't think Stapleton fumbled, but and there were some self-inflicted. There were some, wounds some too. silly like, mistakes. That's not, take, some, that's not to take anything away from North Dakota no, State. Deser- they won the game, chance. right? They, like they did it, and you know we'd be saying, "Oh, good teams find a way to win when they don't have their best game." You know, it's there's a story, pull, and that's true. They are a terrific champion, but this was not like in the past where. JMU was heads and shoulders better than Youngstown State or North Dakota State was heads and shoulders better than, you know, Towson and all those other teams they beat. It was a well-played close game. And, you know, save a couple bounces, we could be looking at JMU as the two-time defending champ. Yeah. And, and even with the losses uh, along the defensive line and in the secondary, I still think, I mean, know every starter's name because they are all going – to do the Paris Black hype train is out, like already out of control. So I mean, if he even like sixty percent delivers, yeah, this is going to be a good defense, and I would know everybody. Yeah, and then like guys like John Daka, I mean, it's just it's a really deep unit, so that's good. The other thing I'd, I'd like to talk about is the offensive line. You know, it, it's saying you you're looking for an offensive line play is a little bit like saying the Velvet Underground's your favorite band. Like you're kind of begging for credibility. So I'm not going to go into the ins and outs and claim that I really understand you know, the, the better better guard play we're going to get this year or whatever. But this is a unit that got a lot of experience last year. Liam Fornado, you know, you've got guys like Mac Patrick coming back, um, uh, Chavius and Jaron Butler, guys who were injured last year. But played. there's a lot of experience for guys who got a lot of reps as young players and in tough situations, you know, in, in playoff runs and things like that. 
I think we're going to see a vast improvement in the offensive line, which already was pretty good. But last year, it took a while for the line and the running backs to gel after Johnson went down. And we started to see it really round in shape with Marcus Marshall in particular towards, towards the end and in the playoffs. And I, I think we're really going to see some stellar play from the offensive line. And another position with an embarrassment of riches is that running back spot. Um, I think Marshall was picked to be all CAA. And, you know, that's certainly he's got the talent to do it. The thing going against him is I think he's got five other guys on the roster who could be all CAA any given week, you know. Um, they're just with, with Percy and um, Juwan Hamilton and Cardon Johnson and Trey Sharp. It's really going to be a, a fun unit to watch and a huge advantage, if not kind of training wheels situation for whoever plays quarterback. Yeah, I don't want to give all my secrets away here, but uh, having talked to Houston, he's excited about the offensive line. He thinks there's a lot of talent. Uh, he thinks it's a talented group of people, and they're a deep group of players. Uh, you don't have necessarily an Aaron Stinney on the line that has you know 25 starts, and he's he's the obvious leader on the team. I, you could, I guess, you could ascribe that to Mac Patrick in a way. But he, you know, there's nobody there that's right now an NFL prospect or is, you know, the obvious leader. Uh, it's just a deep, talented group of young-ish guys, uh, and they're gonna they're gonna go get after it. And and you know, they're all being double trained on positions. And you know, in, in the event of more catastrophic injury uh, luck, and yeah, I, I think that line is gonna gel nicely, and uh, we'll see what happens. But I think. I think you're going to see a return to an offensive line that, you know, I, I dug up a stat uh, earlier that JMU under Mike Houston is 17 and 0 when averaging 4.5 yards per carry. But after September of last year, which is when they sort of had that last really big injury on the offensive line, they only averaged 4.5 uh, a carry. Like I want to say four times and only one of them was in the playoffs. So I think we're going to get back to that. Where uh, where you're seeing a more dominant offensive line that's just bulldozing people, and they're going to have depth, and they're going to be talented, and, and that's going to that's going to be big in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's I'm looking forward to it. Um, you know, year three of the Houston era, and last year it was a good team, but I, we could never figure out were our expectations for the offense just so sky high after two years ago, or was it just a situation where it certainly was not pedestrian? That would be but it was not nearly as dynamic as some of the more recent years' offenses. Um, they got hot at the right time with Marcus Marshall and some other guys. But um, I'd absolutely I'd agree. The stats, that's a telling stat. And there were certainly games last week or games last year where it seemed like the running game really wasn't finding its way until the fourth quarter. Todd and I used to call them like these kind of slow blowouts where it seemed like a close game and then all of a sudden they'd break off two or three touchdown drives in the fourth quarter and they'd win by three scores. But they were never that start-to-finish completely dominating performances that we'd seen two years ago in the regular season. Slow blowout. That's a good way to put yeah. it. Yeah. That's, that's accurate. Yeah. yeah. And then the other guy that already fans are excited about, but I think is people are going to be absolutely crazy for is Riley Stapleton. I mean, this guy just has fan favorite written all over him with the performance he put together in the play performances he put together in the playoffs last year, um, running every route they asked him to making difficult catches yards after the catch clutch catches, I think he is going to be really something special and a guy that, that just has Bridgeforth exploding this fall. 
Yeah, I'm excited to see it. I, I know how high the expectations are. I know what the, the outcry was, you know, when he didn't get all American status with us, he didn't get all CAA status uh, at media day a couple of weeks ago. The only thing I worry about, and this is more about my own personal paranoia than anything to do with Riley is are the expectations so high for him going into the season that they're not uh, realistic. Uh, but he, I mean, it's a very short list of players who are as physically gifted as him at the FCS level. And he certainly has the ability to just take over the entire season and really make a lot of people regret not putting him on uh, preseason lists and such things. Yeah. Well, I don't know as, as sky high as expectations are and for good reason, I think it's legitimate not to say that he's all CAA or all American. Um, last year he was really good when he was playing and down the stretch, but in terms of full season, he didn't have numbers that jumped out at you and other guys did, you know, New Hampshire and Richmond have, have a couple of receivers that really put up just silly numbers. So that's fine. They can go in there. But in terms of potential, he's got every bit as much talent, if not more so. Uh, just kind of depends on how the rest of the offense comes along and certainly the QB question, which is still hanging out there. Yeah. yeah so, yeah, well said. Yeah. Okay. Well, with that, we're going to um, throw it over to the interview we did earlier that I did earlier with Shelly Gadon, uh, the new women's tennis coach who just recently joined JMU from Alabama, where she's an assistant. Prior to that, she was head coach at Middle Tennessee State. Um, but before we do that, Chase, thanks a lot. Really appreciate you stepping up here. And can you let folks know where to find you? Of course. Uh, you can always uh, find me on Twitter. At, it's at Chase A. Kitty. It's just my name. Uh, Hero Sports is my, uh, my main job, I suppose you could say. So go over there. We have a page totally dedicated to FCS coverage. Lots of good JMU stuff. Lots of good CAA stuff. That's uh, primarily what you're going to get from me, JMU and CAA stuff. I uh, should have a, a good JMU camp feature coming out here in the next, next week or so. So look for that. And also, uh, I, I always do a really big, uh, very intensive uh, JMU football preview. I think you guys actually like did uh, used it a little bit for a pod last year. We did. We relied uh, on it heavily. Yes. So that will comes out uh, two weeks from today. We're recording this Monday night. Uh, so two weeks from today is – August 20th. That'll be on my blog, chaseforgreatness.com. Uh, so some stuff to look forward to uh, from me going forward, I, I hope. Okay, awesome. Well, Chase, cannot thank you enough for stepping in for Todd. I had fun tonight. Really appreciate you joining us. And please, people, go check out his work at Hero Sports and the work the rest of the team over there is doing. Really is top-notch stuff. The best FCS coverage you, you will find anywhere. So thanks a lot, Chase. Yeah, anytime, man. All right, see you. Later. Hello, and uh, we're pleased right now to welcome tennis head coach, uh, Shelly Gadon. Shelly, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And welcome to JMU. Um, for people that don't know, Shelly just recently got this job, I believe, was it in June? It was. It was uh, near the end of June. So just okay. going on a month and getting situated, and it's been a really good transition. I, I bet. Um, why don't we just start there? I know James Bryce had a lot of success the past three years at JMU as the coach. He, uh, he stepped away to take, take some time with his family. Um, how did you 
how were you made aware of the Jamie job and kind of what made it so attractive? Um, I actually was made aware of it, not directly by James, but just through knowing James and kind of knowing um, what he had done here. I knew that he had stepped away to, you know, pursue a different opportunity. So yeah, immediately my interest was peaked because I knew what a good job he had done. Um, you know, I, I wanted, I was at a time where I wanted to be a head coach again. And so it was just really attractive. You know, the JMU brand is growing. Um, I think every year it continues to grow on the national level. Um, and so immediately as I was interested, because I knew, knew what a great job he had done and what a great you know school this is. So um, you know, right away was interested in, in the position. That's cool. Now you came from Alabama where you'd played as an undergrad and then you most recently were an assistant coach. Prior to that, you had some head coaching experience at Middle Tennessee State. Um, can you explain a little bit about that progression, you know, going from a head coach back to maybe a larger job and now bouncing back into the head coaching yeah, so uh, game? I, um, I became a head coach just after two years of being an assistant, you know, after I finished you know, finished school and finished playing. And so um, it was a great experience. I loved every minute of it. But home called, you know, after four years at MTSU, um, the head coach at Alabama is who I played for. She's still there. Um, you know, she called and asked me to come back and help her with some things that she was trying to do with the program. And so, you know, it's hard to turn down home when they call. And so I was really excited for that opportunity to get to go back and give back to Alabama because obviously I feel like they've given me a lot with my experience there as a student athlete. Um, so it really was a privilege to get to go back and to, to help her and coach alongside her. Um, and I think we got to accomplish some of the things that she wanted to. And so it was a good time for me to, you know, get back into being a head coach myself. And, um, you know, this opportunity really, you know, really was, was right for me. Awesome. Well, now I, I think a lot of people are big tennis fans, particularly women's tennis fans mm -hmm. nowadays with, with the American women being so good. But can you talk a little bit about how, or explain to us how the college uh, game works? I know you've got fall tournaments and then traditionally where the regular season is in the spring. Can you explain how that works? Maybe to the average fan who might not be familiar. Yeah. So we pretty much go year round with, like you said, the fall season being more individual and um, the players playing individual tournaments. And then the spring season being our head to head, like dual season is what we call it, dual match season. Um, so our NCAA championships are at the end of the spring and it starts with the team championships. And then following the team championships, they have uh, individual singles and doubles tournaments. So you crown a team champion champion, singles champion, and doubles champion. Um, so maybe that's where it's a little bit different than maybe, say, a volleyball, soccer, or softball, where their offseason they play, but maybe it doesn't really count, per se. Our fall counts it towards the players' individual rankings and um, you know, their ability and efforts to get into the postseason themselves. So you, oh, okay, you cool. can make the postseason as an individual, even though your team does not. Just like how college golf works, I guess. Yes, yes, very Same with Okay, now there's been a lot of press lately on how college sports, no matter no matter the sport, have essentially become year-round activities. Mm -hmm. um, in addition to the ways that you just mentioned with tennis having you know the fall and, and spring seasons, how does it work for the average college uh, tennis player? Are they on campus all summer? Are they off training on their own? What's it like? What's the life of a college tennis player? You know, I think you have a little bit of both in the summer. A lot of players are out playing. Um, whether that be back in their home country or maybe around their home state. Um, but there's a college circuit that the ITA provides, uh, which is the Intercollegiate Tennis Association. So they provide a summer circuit, and then you've got the professional circuit that some players play on. So there's a lot of opportunity to play, um, to play tournaments in the summer, which is probably best case, just so that the players are out getting match play. And then when they come back in the fall, they're ready to go 
you know, straight into our tournament season. Um, you know, and the same is true of the winter break when they go home, you know, oftentimes there's tournaments. So they spend a lot of time playing, you know, if they're in school, then they're, they're training in the summer and hopefully they're able to get away on some weekends and play. Um, so probably very similar to golf. They, the more they play, the better. Yeah. So how does that impact you as a new coach? Have you been able to connect with most of the players on the roster? Are there still people you're waiting? I know you've got an international. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been able to connect with them all, but that's a great question because I told someone the other day, I feel like I have an office job right now. Like I don't get to see the players. We're not practicing. So it's a little bit of a, um, an odd time leading up to school starting of just kind of doing office work every day. And I haven't met any of the players, but I've gotten to be in touch and communicate with all of them, you know, on a pretty regular basis. And that has been great. Uh, yeah, I just because I noticed like I was taking a look at the roster before, and I, it's literally a global roster. I mean, it's it U.S., Canada, England, France, Russia. All over. Um, is that typical of college tennis, or or was it you know the, James James's strategy, or just kind of a coincidence that it's worked out that way? No, it's very common. You see it across the board. It's such an international sport. Like if you know take a look at the pro level, it's just such an international sport and worldwide that you. Know, now, instead of everybody just trying to go pro right away, um, young guys and girls are thinking like, hey, we'll go to college. And you know, if that's an avenue to continue playing pro, they will. Otherwise, it's an avenue for an education in the college tennis experience. So you have players from all over everywhere. Wow. So with that being said, you know, you've got these players who probably have pretty strong ties to coaches prior to coming to, to JMU mm-hmm. and they're playing all these different tournaments. How does recruiting work? Like I know in, in football, it's primarily through high school and basketball. The AAU scene is big and lacrosse. It's big with like summer camps. And mm-hmm. How does it work for tennis? So for tennis, there's a year long tournament schedule um, where the, that be the, there's a professional um, tournament schedule that a lot of players play. There's an international schedule. And then obviously there's an American circuit as well. So it's really, it's keeping up with, you know, different tournaments along the way, maybe depending on what you're looking for. Um, it is a lot of it is networking, maybe um, knowing coaches in different locations, whether that be, you know, here or abroad, your former players helping. So really it's kind of connections and um, especially with the international players. A lot of it is your connections with former players or coaches and um, just the relationships that you build with people. Okay. Now, one of the big things that came out of JMU last week was that the school is going to pay cost of attendance for um, all sports. Do you have any idea how that's going to work with your program yet? And can you anticipate what sort of impact it's going to have? You know, we don't we don't know details yet, so I don't want to you know speak to that. But I do know it's going to make a profound impact for all of us. I mean, what a great way to, um, you know, the opportunity for our student athletes. And obviously it speaks to the leadership of Mr. Bourne and his executive staff to be able to make this possible. Um, I know I'm very excited about it. And I can already think, you know, just example for the international kids, it's a lot for them to die, you know, plane thing about their plane tickets to go home for Christmas or their plane tickets to go home for the summer that can really add up. So that's going to be something, you know, very tangible way that that will help them immediately. Oh yeah. I mean, it seems like it'd be huge for all sports, but particularly for a sport like tennis yeah. or I know field hockey has a lot of international players where um, it's a tough transition to college for anybody, but particularly if you're moving across the world absolutely. Um, to add that out. Okay. Well, th- that's a, good overview of kind of the the way college tennis works. Let's talk a little bit about this year and, and your expectations for the team. Um, Obviously William and Mary is kind of the, (laughs) the big 10,000 pound gorilla. Yeah. um, The, the Alabama football, so to speak, (laughs) and CAA tennis. I can't really. Um, 
Yeah, so, I mean, four-time defending champ. They've yeah. won, like, whatever, like, 17 out of the last 20 or something like that. But JMU was right there with them last year, and JMU's coming off its most successful season. Um, I think they had 20, 20 wins. 20 wins, wins and... yeah, that's correct. Um, so, how are you, what are your goals for this year? What are your expectations? You know, one thing that stood out to me um, in my process, the interview process and getting to know their program and getting to know the players is their expectations. You know, that's something that early on I wanted to know, what do you guys want, especially the upperclassmen who, you know, have lost the last two years to William & Mary. What do you want? And they want to go get it done. You know, they want to go see if they can't, you know, win that championship and um, do something special. So that's what I'm here to help them do is, you know, reach their goals, reach their dreams. And so that's what we're going to go for. And um, we have a lot of experience um, in the last couple of years will really help with that. I mean, these girls have been there before. And I think that's something that will be a big difference as we continue to move forward and to build is having the experience and having been there, they're going to ha- continue to handle that moment you know, better and better. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited and we have, we have big expectations and uh, I really look forward to getting the girls here on campus and you know, start working towards those. Yeah, when when does every report to camp or campus? They report, you know, just for school. Um, you know, about the weekend before school gets started, we um we get started those first couple weeks and really hit the ground running from there. Awesome. Well, that's all we have. But once again, just thank you so much for joining us tonight, Shelly, and welcome to to JMU. Um, when can fans first come out and see you guys this fall? So actually, we won't be at home this fall. Um, so we'll have to catch us in the spring. Uh, early spring, we'll be in the in the bubble. Um, ready to get after it okay well thank you very much and good luck maybe we'll have you on again in the spring talk yeah. about uh, the dual season great thank you so much for having me and have a good night yeah thanks coach right, thanks okay well thank you to jamie's newest coach shelly um really enjoyed talking with her and appreciate her taking the time to come on and join us here on the podcast while she's she's new to the school Wish her and the women's tennis team plenty of luck this year. Looking forward to seeing what they can do and if they can finally knock William and Mary off that perch. Uh, once again, thank you very much to Chase Kitty, our pal and tonight's co-host. Really enjoyed having him on. And thank you again, as always, to our sponsor, Pale Fire Brewing. Go check out the tasting room in Harrisonburg. Tell them JMU Sports Blog sent you and you will get a free pint glass. Uh, Todd will be back next week and we are getting ready to talk some serious football almost time for game preview so thanks for joining us and go dukes